We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. It's an honor to welcome a good friend and frequent guest back to the podcast. S.A. Cosby, or Sean, as he's known to his friends, is the multi-award-winning New York Times best-selling crime writer of such remarkable novels as Blacktop Wasteland, Razorblade Tears, and All the Sinners Bleed. Sean, I want to thank you so much for being here, and congratulations on your new book, another wonderfully written novel your your writing is always just top notch and it's a scary one i'm warning people but it's another fabulous essay cosby read it was just on uh president obama's list um his second appearance on the list so we are all so proud so sean (laughs) how is your summer going and what's what's been happening well, it's great to be back again, Jen. I say this before, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I am always honored when somebody like you, who is a really great film scholar, allows me to come over here and proselytize and pontificate <laughs> as just a fan. And uh, it really does mean a lot to me. Um, no, the summer's been good. I mean, I've been taking a little, well, I, I've been taking a little break from writing, but I've been traveling a lot. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've been, uh, I've been to Amsterdam and England. I, I went on a, a tour for all the centers bleed. Uh, so I traveled all across the country for most of June's so I was on the road. Um, and uh, I'm, a, I'm enjoying a little respite. I'm writing a little bit because I never really stop. But we, you know, writers always say, well, I'm taking a break. I never take a break. I mean, I try, but <laughs> it's like, it's, it's hard because there's this idea that comes in my head and it's like, Oh wow, I should really work on this. Or that'd be cool if I did that or that. Um, but I am taking a little respite from the traveling uh, for most of August, um, not going anywhere for a while until VoucherCon, um, which is at the end of the month. And I'll see, hopefully, a bunch of our mutual friends, uh, uh, you know, Jordan Harper and uh, Kelly Garrett and folks like that. Um, but other than that, not too much. I, oh, I bought myself a car for my birthday. Yes, uh, it was my it's dream fabulous. car. Yes. 
It is. It's. I'm gonna tell you. It. I, I've. I've been trying to sort of be. Uh. Sort. I've been trying to sort of play it down a little bit, or or be a little. Uh. uh more subtle. But God, it's a great car. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it so much. It's. it's, a, it's I can't. I'm not gonna advertise it, but it's a really nice car, and it's sort of a retro body style, but with modern amenities. And um. Yeah, I've been a. I've been uh, really enjoying seeing just how fast we can go on some of these back roads. But other yeah. than that, I've been, it's been a, it's been a kind of like, careful, buddy. <laughs> I know, I know everybody's yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, I feel like I got, yeah. I feel like I have, I feel like I have enough room for at least one speeding ticket. So it's okay. like, I think if you buy a car like that, you have to, you have to budget a speeding ticket or two into the, into your, uh, into your financial a plan. So I think I got one in me, but no, it's, uh, you know, I've, I've talked, I've shared this before. I grew up in really, uh, economically disadvantaged, uh, environs. And so, uh, being able to buy this car for myself with, you know, basically the proceeds from my books, you know, it's a dream. That's amazing. Yeah. And congratulations. And I'm glad you bought yourself something. Um, you know, the guy who wrote blacktop wasteland needs a cool car. So can you write it off as a business expense? I mean, I like, I am not an accountant, but maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I've been saying, I mean, I've been thinking that, you know, I was like, I wrote this really, you know, intense automotive driven thriller. So I got to kind of play the part, you know, branding, man. We're always branding, but no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I'm just glad to see you. It's been a while. So I was really excited to get you back on the podcast. I think last time we talked was right before you were heading out for Amsterdam. Actually, we were talking about uh, Boiling Point and Dennis Hopper for that Mm -hmm. three-part episode I did on Dennis Hopper, which was so much fun. And I was glad to see you. Uh, You were kind of getting over like a chest cold or something and heading out the next day. And it was very kind of you to just squeeze in a little time to talk about Hopper. And I was really excited to have you back for a full episode. Our last one was last winter, fall, winter. We talked about Adam McGoyan's movies and, you know, got into some weird territory with that. And uh, you know, we're back as in the you do 70s. when you talk about the Anthemagoyan film. How can you not? I think right? films, you can't. It's it's a requirement that you start talking about surrealism yeah. and existentialism and, and sort of transgressiveness. So uh I think Yeah, those are and Elias is doing whatever the hell he's doing in those movies. I mean, you know, we're gonna get into weird, weird stuff. Uh, I told you the story about the the woman who tried to recruit me into her like escort agency and she had the wrong girl. And, you know, we we go places with our conversations. That's what you do with friends. Every once in a while, I have yes. to be careful when I have like you or Jordan or Rob or Blake on because we're just so used to telling each other things. And so it's like, oh, shit, do I want everybody to know this? So (laughs) we might go into those uh, stories today a little bit when we're talking about Alan J. Pakula, who is another filmmaker we love. We are fans of the 70s. We had so much fun talking about like Pacino in the 70s, um, some of the Lumet movies, the Coppola movies. And this is another filmmaker from that school. So tell me about Alan J. Pakula, what drew you to him and why you love his movies. And then we'll get into them. So as I've said before, I love, as you you mentioned, I love that sort of 70s cinema verte school of American 
uh, yeah. filmmaking. And we talked about, you know, you, you, you can, I guess you can include uh, John Cassavetes in that, mm -hmm. uh, Paul Mazursky, uh, as you said, you know, Scorsese, of course, Coppola, of course. And Bakula, I, I think, Lamette, I think Bakula has somewhat been, I won't say forgotten, but he's not always grouped in with those great filmmaking. He should be. Um, his movies are very literate. They have sort of this boiling rage under the surface and, and mm -hmm. rage at the system, at, you know, yes. the, the, the society. Um, there's this sense of these people in his movies who are going against the grain, so to speak, and or people who are really, really fighting a sort of personal battle within themselves, within the context of, you know, our usual American system, whether it's law, journalism, um, crime, uh, what have you. And I think the thing that stuck out with me about Bakula, I read an interview, an article years ago on, on his untimely passing. And someone said, when you visited him at his house, he had a room full of books mm -hmm. and you knew he was the type of person who had read them all. And he brought that same sort of intellectual curiosity to his filmmaking. So now as a kid, I wasn't a huge fan of Bakula. I, I you know, I, I was a kid. I liked more action driven, you know, Southern B movies and stuff like that. But when I started getting into my twenties, which is the moment I think all young men think they're philosophers and we think we have something to say. Um, I started watching more serious films. That was when I got into French New Wave, when I got into the work of Akira Kurosawa. And so I watched you know, the movies we're going to talk about today, All the President's Men, and Clute, and, and, uh, and later on, Presumed Innocent. But All the President's Men was one of the first one I watched as sort of a young man going into adulthood. And I, I watched that movie with the same sort of... Uh, artistic anticipation and I watched Coppola and Scorsese and I'm like, oh, wow, here's a guy who is really doing interesting things and talking about the truth and talking about what is the truth and, and why does it matter? Especially, I think that's really uh, sort of uh, important in, in the context of our, you know, current, not just political, I'm not gonna call it political, but our current social environment where the truth seems to be lost. You know, and and Bakula was a, a guy, a director who was really fascinated with the idea of truth and who we are and where we what decisions we make to get us there. But also he was really fascinated with the larger questions about the, you know, the, the fourth estate and about, you know, what are we as a country? What are we as a nation, as a society? And, um, you know, it's funny, like I said, it's, I, I think it's sad that he passed, you know, very untimely in a, in a freak accident. Yeah. And so I think his. uh his contributions have have started to be a little bit overlooked, which is a shame because I think he's one of our finest American filmmakers. I agree with you. I think his uh, last name isn't a household name when you think of 70s filmmakers. You can kind of almost put them in pairs. And growing up, I, I would always hear uh, Pakula and Pollock together. Sometimes they would collaborate. Um, we're going to talk about a film that Sidney Pollock actually developed and then produced that... Uh, Alan J. Pakula wound it up, uh, winded up directing. And, um, you know, those two kind of worked with some of the same actors. Also, they made some anti-establishment, some paranoid movies around this time. But then you also think of like Lumet and Friedkin as two peas, peas in a pod. You have Scorsese and De Palma or Scorsese and Schrader. They're almost like triplets there. 
And I think Fakula kind of gets overshadowed some of his um, films because they are psychological portraits. Before he was a filmmaker, his line was that he wanted to be a director at 18, but he didn't direct his first movie until he was 40 years old. And before that, of course, he was a producer and he produced a lot of movies for Mulligan. Uh, he of course, did To Kill a Mockingbird. That is his most famous uh, film that he produced and kind of shepherded through. Uh, his first movie was The Sterile Cuckoo. But, uh, and that really made a big splash. Liza Minnelli was nominated. I think it was nominated for two or three Academy Awards. And it's still one that Liza mm -hmm. considers one of her best performances. He was a director of women uh, very, very well. Um, somebody who understood and respected women and that's what Meryl Streep and Jane Fonda and Julia Roberts and women who worked with him would always say is he just kind of innately understood women and would re relate to them as women and people and actresses so um, like a few different ways and it was uncommon for some of the men of the era especially uh, filmmakers of the era and I do think that he is somebody because he kind of embraced the collaborative process and the actors. He was known as an actor's director, kind of like Stephen Frears is um, as well. Someone who's known for directing a lot of people into their Oscar nominated performances. I think it's easy to lose sight of the fact of, you know, this isn't necessarily doesn't have a stamp of Pakula on it, whereas 10 frames you're like well that's him obviously like you know mm. immediately with the palma or somebody yeah yeah i think pakula to his i mean i think he is sort of viewed as a journeyman in a way but he's not he's he's uh, he's a lot part of that modern auteur class and I, i'm glad you brought up like pollock and uh mm -hmm. and lament you know and also uh those those guys he's a part of that class i think mm -hmm. he has such a professional and such a, a a a interesting hand when it comes to his movies you know yeah. like his his noted style his his signature style is sort of it's almost a documentarian feel to his yes. stuff he's not Fly a flash director he doesn't right he doesn't do a lot of like camera tricks you know mm -hmm. like you see you mentioned the palma he doesn't use a lot of fade in fade out uh, <laughs> or the the dutch Split angle screen. or anything like that he's just yeah, he doesn't use split screen. He's just here's his camera. It's but it's also very intimate. It's like mm -hmm. we're watching through a, a a glass darkly with him, and I think that's uh, a skill that I think is underappreciated. It's sort of that that third eye in the room, and you see it really well include you know and uh, you know Donald uh, Sutherland, Jane Fonda, and you mentioned him being a director of women. I think. Jane Fonda has rarely been better than she was included. Obviously, she mm -hmm. won Best Actress uh, for yeah. it. Uh, Donald Sutherland is great. Um, but that movie has sort of... And you know what's funny about his style? It's not noir. It's different than noir. It is very, like I said, cinema verte, very matter-of-fact. That's a mm -hmm. good way of saying it. But in that sort of almost Midwestern, you know, uh, matter-of-fact storytelling style is really deep questions about us as individuals and our place as an individual in society and our place as a part of a larger society. You know, Clute is really, you know, it's a, I won't say standard, but in the 70s, it was sort of the standard paranoia-driven story about a black 
blackmail and sex and murder. But it's also um, a story about a modern woman who is mm-hmm. defining herself. And, and, and she has incredible agency at a time when maybe not that many female actresses or characters had agency. You know, uh, Jane Fonda's character, Brie, is, you know, she's a woman who is a prostitute, but she's her own boss. Uh, she's independent. Uh, if you saw her on the street in the way Bakula shoots her, she could just be another 70s era divorcee or 70s era modern uh, exp- exploration of, of a woman. Um, he doesn't judge her. He doesn't mm-hmm. use the camera to make any more judgments on her or Clue. Um, and I think that's fascinating. You know, and don't get me wrong. I love the the actor. Let me start. I love the directors who are a little, have a little more flourish. You know, of mm-hmm. course, Scorsese, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned Pollock, uh, Terrence Malick, guys like that. But there's something to be said for the sort of, like I said, workmanlike professionalism that Pakula brings to the table. Um, it mm-hmm. makes the story feel more authentic in a way. Yeah, and I love that um, this is a time period. And this is also when I'm recording this, I'm preparing because tomorrow morning, I'm talking with Megan Abbott and Allison Galen about Brian De Palma. So a lot of this week has spent, uh, been spent going back and forth between these two very different filmmakers, some of their interviews and reading their thoughts, and they have very different attitudes on filmmaking. They both use split diopters. Of course, you know, we'll talk about all the president's men in a minute. But Pakula was more about the psychological needs of his characters and using the camera in order to further that, like in Clute, which is our first movie, we often see um, she's in the dark, she's claustrophobic, she's being shrunk uh, down by her um, environment. There's a shot where she is sitting along with like 40 other women who all are beautiful and similar in um, their coloring, and they're all aspiring actresses under these massive uh, p- paintings that are like pop art or advertising. And they're hoping to be like the next poster girl or something. And how um, she's just sort of a doll in this little factory of, you know, uh, of the, the industry. And so I think he uses the camera in really intriguing ways like the brightest shots in the movie the one i just mentioned or when it opens in um, pennsylvania at the uh, family estate of the man who goes missing like we go around a table it's a really interesting uh, opening sequence where we're seeing like a very happy family and a group of people and they're all having a great meal together and it goes around and then all of a sudden it cuts to an empty chair and you're like, this man is not there anymore. And then it starts getting dark. And uh, so he uses, mm-hmm. you know, the texture and the color in order to put forth the philosophies that he wants and the to put you in the mindset of these characters and somebody like um, De Palma, who I've been reading about, calls himself a visual stylist who you know, thinks in terms of the visual first. And so it is it's mm-hmm. interesting. And then he builds the story around I it. Think, yeah, I think with Pakula too, and you mentioned, funny you mentioned De Palma, where and De Palma is very interested in the visual, but also he's interested in almost the voyeuristic yes. reaction that mm-hmm. we have 
to the film. He wants us to feel something uncomfortable, aroused, yeah. turned on, turned off. But Kula's almost clinical with it. Like, yes. using this as an example, this, when you talk about sexuality in movies, and there's a big debate. Um, well, I don't say it's a big debate. There is a debate among folks that you don't need sex scenes in movies. And I'm not going to weigh too far into that. But I think when you look at these two directors, um, you can look at Pakula, where sex is just another part of the narrative life. conversation that we're having. You know, yes. it's just another part of life. It's just, it's it's a part of life. Like, you know, uh, Jane Fonda's character paying her bills or going on auditions. It's just another part of life as, you know, uh, Donald Sutherland's character, who is Clute, um, getting up and driving from Pennsylvania to New York and starting this investigation. It's just another part of the, the puzzle. Whereas with the Palma, sex is the driver. Sex yep. is the instigator it's the thing that makes us move it's the thing he has a very interesting idea that you know that sex is the progenitor behind everything we do mm-hmm. and i'm not i don't disagree with either one of them i think it's interesting to see both perspectives um uh, for me when i watched clue and I, I watched it again recently you know in advance of, of our discussion i was just struck by there's a sense of loneliness in the movie you know very much there's an emptiness to not only uh, 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 Bree's character, John, Jane Fonda's character, but also Clute. And there's this sense of people. And I think there was sort of this reawakening of existentialism in the 70s. You know, there was the whole self-help movement that started. You know, there was the whole, uh, you know, finding yourself sort of movement that different from the 60s, where the 60s was more like, you know, it was sort of a hedonistic thing where we're going to go ahead and try everything and do anything and then we'll find ourselves eventually. And mm-hmm. in the 70s, I think, as a country, you know, you know, in the shadow of Vietnam, in the shadow of sort of the the, the denouement, the civil rights movement, there were people asking themselves questions about who am I? This in the, in the you know, in the in, in the shadow of the sexual revolution, we went from not being able to be sexual and intimate and in a way that was free and, and open to almost being sexual and intimate in a way that became uh, inauthentic and became hollow. And, and I thought Clute was very interesting in the way Pakula was approaching that. Again, he's not a director that makes any judgment calls, but he is putting it out there for you to see. It's sort of a Rorschach uh, uh, test. How do you feel? There's a, there's a famous scene in Clute uh, where Jane Fonda's character is with a client mm-hmm. and they're being intimate. And at some point she looks at her, her watch, yeah. you know, and so, and it's this sort of moment where as a, as a viewer, you're initially maybe a little aroused, maybe a little turned on. But in that moment, you realize not only is this just a job for her, not only is this just something she does to make money, you also feel a profound sadness for her because yeah. maybe this isn't really what she wants to do, you know? And I think yeah. that's sort of, that's sort of, existential malaise is interesting in Pakula's movies as opposed to De Palma or, you know, even like Scorsese. Uh, Mm -hmm. Scorsese has a much more sort of, uh, a much more sort of visceral style. Uh, Even when he's doing like Age of Innocence, I think people can think that Scorsese just does gangster movies. But when he's doing Age of Innocence, this sort of visceral reaction to society, whereas Pakula, again, is very clinical it's very it's a distance to it and i think that makes his films fascinating to me anyway yes and i kept coming back to exactly what you were talking about when comparing pakula and de palma this week because 
for exactly the same reasons. Uh, Pakula actually pointed out in an interview uh, where people were saying, you know, it's about a call girl and and people are killing off call girls. And he said, but if you actually pay attention to my movie, there's really very little violence. And there's no, you never see like a knife enter somebody's um, body or any stabbing. Like there's a threat. People are following her. It's all like perceived kind of like his paranoid trilogy, um, you know, not an intentional uh, paranoid trilogy, but you had this, you had Parallax View and all the president's men kind of collectively became the paranoia trilogy of Alan J. Pakula. But he said he didn't want somebody watching who was maybe unstable to sort of see a link between sexuality and violence and get aroused or find um, sadistic pleasure in it. He said that would be the worst thing. And he was very conscious of that. And he didn't want it to, you know, not just Jane Fonda, but he just didn't want to put that kind of a message out there. Like somebody would watch his movie which is about people and get accidentally aroused or thinking that he is really enjoying showing this. Whereas De Palma, you know, he has that famous thing of like, well, he likes to turn people on. And what is it about violence and sex? And they're kind of, they go hand in hand. And so they had, again, we're not saying one isn't necessarily the right way to do it or the wrong no, way, no. but it's interesting um, to kind of have these two filmmakers juxtaposed. Uh, you brought up, I think it is uh, Jane Fonda, one of her best performances by far. I also love Coming Home quite a bit, but mm -hmm, she is mm -hmm. fabulous in this. She actually tried to get herself fired from the movie. She tried to quit. She went to Pakula's <laughs> office and said, just call Faye Dunaway. Like, Faye should do this because she just thought, you know, she is the best actress of the day. And Jane was a little bit unsure. She took the role like before... Uh, as Pakula said, she became, quote unquote, radicalized. So uh, and then when she was on the, the movie set, she was working on so many things involving the war and women's rights. And she had a lot of things. But he said, you know, she managed to uh, just like give me a few minutes when they needed her. And she'd go stand in a corner and he would just watch her get into character. And um, he said he started to put all the prostitution stuff later in the shooting schedule, like it actually cost them money, but he wanted her to build her own confidence and uh, he would help her along the way. She kind of wanted more help than he was willing to give because he respects actors and he knew what she could bring to it psychologically. They had uh, people on set, real prostitutes to like give her pointers and stuff. And eventually she, you know, found her way. She even lived in the apartment set um she asked if she could live on the set so he got a toilet installed for her because she said she just wanted <laughs> to be in Bree's world and my question to you as especially a writer a writer of mysteries and thrillers is I still go back and forth like why did they call it Clute I mean John Clute is an interesting character they said they didn't want to call it Bree because they didn't want people to assume it was about cheese but there's something about Clute <laughs> You know, like, what are they doing with calling it Clute when he's so much less interesting than the Brie character? I mean, Sutherland is amazing, but your thoughts. 
I think there are two main reasons. One obvious, one not. I, th- I think the obvious one is it's 1970s. You know, the <laughs> yeah. male character has to be the lead. You know, he has to he has to be the guy, even though he's not the guy. She's yeah. the gal, and I don't mean that derisively. Um, but also, I think maybe as a writer, as I think maybe Pakula was using Clute as sort of an avatar for us. Like Clute is the detective. Ooh, the audience he's trying to solve the missing. Yeah, he's trying to solve this case, but he is new to this world mm-hmm. of call girls and actresses. And this woman, Jane Fonda's character, is new to him. He's from Pennsylvania. And that's again, that's not a dig at Pennsylvania, but he's no. from a different world, basically. And you and I, as, as a kid growing up in the South of Virginia, watching movies about New York always felt like I was watching like alien transmissions from the I know because yeah. it was so far away from my understanding my reality and then later on in life traveling to new york city you realize that the new york of serpico and of clute and of uh of mean streets it's not that far off from the movies it's a hyper the movies are hyper realized a hyper stylized version Mm -hmm. but there is this sort of this sort of inertia that exists in a place like new york and so clute is our avatar he's this fish out of water in a way you know he's brave he does his job you know he protects jane fonda's character but i would posit that jane fonda character doesn't need that much protection you know she's a fully actualized authentic woman character at a time when those were few and far between and like you said i think bakula really specialized in that and not in a a way that's a that's a, a parlor trick he really, like you said, it was interested in the psychology of people. And mm-hmm. he treated women like people. He didn't treat them like objects. They're not mm-hmm. sidekicks. They're not uh, treasures to be won, especially in his early films. They're people. They're just other characters. And so I think Clute is our avatar to seeing this woman who is so different from what he understands. It's so different from who he is. Um, and we, along with Clute, are both aroused by frustrated by fascinated with this character and so i think i'm giving them a little more credit than they deserve i think the real <laughs> reason was the first reason but i also think you can make the case that clute is called the movie's called clute because it's him sort of learning about this this woman and this and this you know finding somebody who is different than you but also fascinating find someone who's different from you but did you also find yourself being drawn to is terrifying but exhilarating and i think you know pakula did that in this film in a way that was really like i said sort of clinical sort of distant but also just real like i said that real cinema verte you know of course you can say well private eyes don't really solve mysteries and you know so on and so forth but there's something very down to earth and grounded about brie and about clute and their relationship and i guess i'll get a spoiler alert movement out for 50 years um you know they don't really end up together at the end Mm-mm. brie is very determined to not give up her autonomy and she likes clute and she cares about it i would even say she loves him but she loves herself more and i think that's important especially for movies of that time i think that's massively yes. important i as a writer i i always strive to give my female characters agency i give my i try my best to not make them just 
arm candy for my main characters. A lot of my main characters, most of my main characters are men. and But I don't want the women in the books to just, like I said, be prizes to be won. They have their own hopes and dreams and desires and wants and needs, you know, and just real quick, like in All Sinners Bleed, uh, the sheriff has a girlfriend. And mm-hmm. at certain points in that book, I really struggled, not struggled, I really wanted to make sure that his girlfriend had her own agency and she had her own autonomy and she wasn't just a damsel in distress. She was a person with wants and needs and desires. And if he couldn't fulfill those, then she was going to take matters in her own hands. And I think that's something that Bakula excelled at with Clute, with, with Brie in the movie Clute. But also it is a very fascinating, suspense-driven psychological drama. Um, it has like that sort of gritty, just 70s feel. I don't know how to explain. It's not just the cinematography. It's something about the way the movie is constructed from the opening credits to the end. And it's like that with Serpico. It's like that with Prince of the City. There's something about those movies in the 70s, um, all the way down to Dog Day Afternoon and Mean Streets, where it just feels like we're not in the land of you know, uh, Billy Wilder and, uh, 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 you know, uh, Otto Preminger anymore. We're in a different world now and we're going to get down in the dirt and the grime and the gutter. We're also going to be able to like sort of soar. And by soaring, I mean, the, the characters are going to find themselves. And I think, you know, Clute is a perfect example of Bakula's skill at that. Yeah. And I love the ending because, you know, I mean, there's that old line of you can't really love somebody if you don't love yourself, but she's still trying to figure out who she is. Uh, There's a really great, very ahead of its time, like concluding couple of lines there when she is talking to her therapist, like you might see me again next week. And so, you Mm -hmm. know, she's going to try to start over somewhere. She leaves with Clute, but not with him. I mean, they exit out the door at the same time. But we don't know. Is yeah. she back in the life next week? We are not 100% sure. I agree with you. I love everything you were saying about it being possibly like an audience surrogate. Uh, there is sort of an underlying theme. Like when uh, Pakula was looking back, he said, I don't know if there's a theme that keeps going through my movies people say like a search for truth or justice or kind of butting heads against the system is sort of a recurring theme but also if you look at sterile cuckoo and clute and presumed innocent just to name a couple of these uh he was telling stories about kind of straight laced or men who are sort of like himself uh becoming undone by women who are a little wild or a little Mm -hmm. uh you know um faster than they were used to and uh he his own marriage to hope lang was ending around this time and then he met the woman who became his wife for the rest of his life but you know and people said that the hope lang marriage in a documentary i just watched was maybe not the greatest of matches because they were very different and so he was trying to figure out his own life around the same time. You know, he didn't write Clute, but you can kind of see him tapping into it. Also, I love that you were pointing out she doesn't really need to be protected. I mean, obviously, somebody is stalking her and somebody is going to put her life in jeopardy. And, you know, you do want Clute to intervene and help her. But she is trying to figure this out a little bit, too, and use the tools that she has at her own disposal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. as far as being a prostitute, this isn't about sex for her. I mean, it's about money, sure, but it's really about control and having, um, you know, a little bit of 
agency or the illusion of being in control for a little like 15 minute window or however long, you know, she's with one of her Johns and you can kind of see that. And it's sad. And she also in one of the most uh, memorable sequences in the movie where Clute does intervene on her behalf in a very scary sequence. Um, then later she comes down and she's you know terrified and she's kind of playing to his she's figured him out essentially like mm-hmm. he's a trick and figured out that he is uh, a knight in shining armor that would be his complex or his undoing and she seduces him not out of affection at, at she really seduces him in order to humiliate him and to control him and kind of turn that um wheel like you know you might think you're helping me well i can undo your whole world in like two minutes and i figured you out and uh it's fascinating yeah there's a lot to this movie i um i'll tell you real quick uh i had a conversation years ago i was in las vegas i was out there for a wedding and i went down to the bar in a very nice hotel the hotel they filmed casino in which isn't there anymore the riviera and um i met a young lady in the bar I was single and I bought her a drink. We were talking. And after a while, she made it known to me that she was a sex worker. And um, I was fascinated with that. And I said, you know, I kind of joked with her. I said, look, I don't have any money. I'm, I barely made it to Las Vegas. This was before my writing days. So it was like, you know, I had a very finite budget and it didn't <laughs> include uh, any excursions. And so to speak, but we talked for a little bit and I asked her, I said, you know, can I ask you a question? Like, why are you why are, why are you <laughs> such a like I'm not judging you I'm just curious. Yeah. I really am you know and she said you know I grew up in a very repressed ch- uh, home and mm. um this is the one thing that makes me feel like I'm making my own decisions mm, and whether sad. you believe that or you don't mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting thing to explore and I think you know Bakula really explored it really well yeah, absolutely. And of course, you talked about the cinematography. I also love the score on this uh, film, which some of the critics did not. There were some pans, uh, you know, it's a little sparse, uh, but I think it works extraordinarily well. Gordon Willis became somebody he collaborated with a lot. Of course, you know, he's known as the Prince of Darkness with the Godfather, and this was his era. Um, we are not going to talk about parallax view i mean we can reference that one of course as far as the paranoia trilogy but the next one we thought we would jump into was all the president's men so do you remember when you saw this for the first time sean this was maybe the one that made you (laughs) look up pakula and like put two and two together of hey this guy's good yeah i was in college at uh, christian newport university and i was taking a theater arts class and uh one, I, I really was interested in theater arts. I had flirted with the idea of maybe wanting to be a playwright one day. Um, mm-hmm. But also, I thought the class was cool. It was a really fun class. It was taught by this crazy German drama teacher who used to come to class like just every day, enraged and drunk out of his mind, you know, and he's mumbling about his enemies list. And he was, <laughs> but it was just, he, but he showed us. Uh, he he showed us a, a cut of all the president's men because we were working on on uh, oh gosh uh, the Kane mutiny. We were okay. going to do a, a performance of the Kane mutiny, 
and he showed us a, a, a cut of all the president's men because he was his theory was that the came mutiny and all the president's men and all those movies those paranormal movies are all about man realizing he's powerless but mm-hmm. i disagree because when i watched all the president's men what mm-hmm. i took from it is you know all it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing or good people yes. I should say. Mm-hmm. but all it takes for yes that's what i took from it and in those in that movie and of course anybody who's listening who is not aware all the president's men is the story of the watergate scandal mm-hmm. and you know it's about Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, two, you know, regular reporters at the Washington Post who stumble upon the biggest story of the century uh, mm-hmm. up to that point. And I think for me as a, a young student, a young person, I, I I I don't think I'm cynical now. I am a little more cynical than I was then. But I think deep down inside, I, I still am an optimist. So side note for real quick, uh our mutual friend Jordan Harper, he and I talk a lot about writing, about writing theory, about mm-hmm. what are we trying to do. And Jordan said to me recently, he said, you know, I think I'm more a nihilist. He said, in your Old Testament, mm-hmm. you really want good and evil to combat each other and good to triumph, even though evil may get their licks in. He said, I just think the whole system's rotten. I think I wouldn't, and I wouldn't dispute that. I think Jordan, I'm not saying anything Jordan wouldn't agree with. Um, but for me, I still have a little bit of that optimism. And so when I watch a movie like All the President's Men, it does touch that sort of Old Testament, mm-hmm. Western, bad guys, good guys uh, sort of mentality in me. Because, you know, if it wasn't for these two young, and they were young back then, we forget. Oh, they were yeah. Young guys, one for these two young reporters, you know. A, mm-hmm. a crime that could have torn our country apart would have gone unpunished or un, 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 unknown. And they risked not only their their careers, but their lives. And so, again, I think Pakula, using his sort of serene, sort of uh, almost, uh, like I said, sterile style, is able to really bring home just the banality of the story, the horror of the story, the simplistic evil that's happening. You know, it's not you know, it's not James Bond, someone trying to take over the world. It's not, you know, uh, Three Days of Condor, which I love, uh, you know, it, it, these sort of dark Byzantine conspiracies. It's a bunch of really kind of stupid guys who may get away with, uh, with the crime of the century. And it's just, to me, it's sort of that idea that evil is not all powerful. Evil is not uh, in, implacable. Evil is just a lack of empathy. And you have these guys, Carl Wood, uh, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, who, you know, they want a good story. Of course, they want their careers to prosper. But at the end of the day, they're doing the right thing because the right thing is never easy, but it's always worth it. They're just asking questions and they're asking the right questions. And I love yeah. that Robert Redford's character, uh, Bob Woodward, was a new reporter at the time. And he was still needing some pointers. And uh, Carl Bernstein, uh, you know, pulls his copy and then polishes it up. It has one of my favorite lines, which is like, I don't mind what you did. I mind the way you did it. 
like going in and fixing it because his copy is better, but he did it in a sneaky way. And then they wind up having to work together and they sort of um, just, you know, old shoe leather and persistence and working their leads. Mm -hmm. They wind up, um, you know, stumbling on the case of the 70s, essentially, and trying to figure it out. This is the movie that was responsible for, you know, the biggest boom in people signing up for journalism school. I remember... In high school, mm -hmm. I went to like a young, um, like a journalism conference at the University of Minnesota. And when I was there, you know, we had um, a lecturer who I think had worked at the Washington Post. Like it was kind of a whole um, piece on, I don't know if it was a recruitment tool, like go into journalism school and this <laughs> is what will happen, but showing clips from the movie and talking about it. I had seen the movie once before because you know, I just loved um, classic film at that point. And this was one of those movies I knew I needed to to see. And so I loved it. But yeah, this movie, also the thing I love about this whole genre of films, like, uh, you know, our friend Blake Howard loves to call it procedure porn, procedure porn, people just being <laughs> good at their jobs and not giving up. Mm -hmm. It's like stuff we can watch all day, just hard workers. Mm -hmm. Um, especially when you are like Blake and I perfectionists and, you know, people who kind of <laughs> work around the clock and get obsessed about things. And so another film we both love is Zodiac and Zodiac is basically yes. like the modern, uh, all the president's men. You also have uh, the insider, which is a fabulous film that Michael Mann made. That's, you know, Blake's guy. And so, uh, they also made spotlight a few years ago. Um, they made yeah, yeah. Said last year. I wasn't a huge fan of that, but, but I appreciated what they were going into as far as this sort of old school, you know, getting to the truth and people who are willing to chase it down and some things are right and some things are wrong. And I didn't think this was a controversial thing to say. Like I tweeted about uh, the film and how much I love movies about dogged, um, hardworking people and mm -hmm. cited this, but we live in such a strange time that, um, you know, some of the replies wound up uh, like, oh, we need to block those people who believe in weird theories. And it's like, you know, this is all reputable facts, people. Um, but yeah, there's, Let me tell there's you, something. you know, oh, go for it. Oh, I was just going to say, like, I have spent the last couple of days in futility, arguing with people on, on social <laughs> yeah. media. They don't even because argue. Because <laughs> I am just, yeah, I know. I am just one of these people that believe that you know, the truth is the truth. The truth yeah. is in season. You know, there's not such a thing as alternative facts. It's either a fact or it isn't. You know? yes. And I'm not going to get a political stance. I'm not going to get a political rant going. But I will say this. If you have someone on an audio tape Yes. Saying, I need you to find me 11,000 votes. That's called vote tampering. There's no twisting and turning, and there's no what about this. And I'll say this, and I was thinking about this before we got on. I love President Obama. I've been on President Obama's summer reading list twice. Mm -hmm. But if President Obama had done that, I would want him to be indicted too. Oh, you know? yeah. Because the truth mm -hmm. is the truth. You know, and, and things I don't are right and wrong. Yeah. Sort of, yeah, exactly. You know, and so to get back to the film, um, but I but I love what you said about you know Blake's term procedural porn. I just call it craftsmanship that yep. you see people who are just really good at their jobs, mm -hmm. whether they're journalists, whether they're detectives, lawyers, 
it's the reason I love um I'm gonna mention one that's not in the same vein, but because I think it's more bombastic. But I think you know I'm unabashedly a fan of a few good men. And oh, I yeah. know the last 15 minutes by heart. And the thing that people don't get about that is everybody loves, you know, Jack Nicholson chewing the scenery mm-hmm. and you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. And I love that too. <laughs> but what I the but what the nerd in me loves is Tom Cruise's Kathy the night before telling uh you know Kevin Pollock and Demi character Demi Moore's character this is what's gonna happen because I know this guy yep. and I know how arrogant he is mm-hmm. and he and he just he doesn't say this but he knows how arrogant Jessup is because Kathy's arrogant and he mm-hmm. knows that about him and he knows what buttons to push and it's because he's a good damn lawyer and so when you translate that to all the all the president's men Woodward and Bernstein, their movie version and their real life version are just really good damn reporters. And sometimes somebody who's really good at their job, like you said, just doesn't quit, mm-hmm. can cut through all the jetsam and flotsam of, you know, whatever high, high conspiracy is going on. You know, it's funny because I think, you know, this is a part of, like you said, his unofficial trilogy of paranoia. You can group that in, like I said, with Three Days of the Condor, um, other movies of that time. Uh, I think blowout sort of is like that too, sort of the mm-hmm. sort of conspiracy driven idea. And the thing that these movies show is that most conspiracies are not these vast, complex, mm-hmm. you know, cabals. It's a, it's like I said, it's five or six dumb guys doing some yeah. dumb shit and get, and then getting caught. And I and and the reason they get caught is because, like you said, people ask the right questions. And mm-hmm. so back to the filmmaking. The thing that I love about this thing with Pakula, again, the scenes with Deep Throat in the parking garage. Oh, are, love them. They're not, yeah, they're not, he's not trying to give you John Carpenter's Halloween, but they're scary because, especially now as an adult, I know what they're risking. Mm-hmm. It's not just their physical life, it's their careers, you know? Mm-hmm. They could be ruined. And so this is even in time before social media and stuff like that, you know, there's not, like I said, I don't believe in cancel culture. There's no such thing as cancel culture. Because I just saw Mel Gibson in an advertisement for a TV <laughs> So it's like, but, but there is, the people can ruin you. People can ruin your life. And mm-hmm. so the risk that they're taking, you know, and the fact that these guys are doing it because of their job. They're not superheroes. You know, they're not Batman. They're not Superman. But they're these. this is their job. This is what they're really good at. And they use what they're really good at to get to the truth. And I, I thought Bakula, his direction in this again he's sort of come a little bit further than he is include it's a little warmer the direction it's a little bit more personal but it still has sort of this sort of document document documentary feel um but i think he was the director for this mm-hmm. he's the best director for this because i think about this movie you know, what would it look like if scorsese had directed or lamette or pollock and i think pakula like me deep down inside was a little cynical, a little realistic, a little pragmatic, but way mm-hmm. down inside, he had a big, big chunk of optimism. And there mm-hmm. is optimism in all the sin. I'm sorry, in all the presidents, man. Yes, he was somebody who loved to observe. Um, he was like sitting in that newsroom and observing. Uh, Dustin Hoffman shared a really funny story that he shut down the set for like. Mm-hmm three days and they didn't know what was going on they weren't shooting and they found out later it was because Pakula flew to New York to like choose handpick 
the extras that were just going to walk behind the guys in a newsroom shot. Like nobody's going to be paying attention to it except Pakula had been in that newsroom and he knew what those people look like and he really <laughs> needed them to resemble the people that he they saw. And, you know, and I love the little attention to detail, like the wrinkles in their clothing. Um, Bradley, Jason Robards, I think has my favorite uh, part in the film. He's amazing. I mean, they're all great. Uh, I like that you brought up A Few Good Men. It was really kind of funny because I did an episode a couple seasons ago with Bilga Ibiri on legal thrillers. And we talked about another Pakula film, uh, The Pelican Brief, and A Few Good Men in the same episode. And I like that you were pointing out just people being good at their jobs because as much as we all enjoy, you know, uh, I eat breakfast and you can't handle the truth and all of that stuff. The line that, for whatever reason, just always stuck in my head from being a kid was when you had Tom Cruise wanting to yell at Kevin Bacon, but he knows he can't call him a bad lawyer because he's a good lawyer. And it's just mm-hmm. that he pissed him off. And so the line I love is, you're a lousy fucking softball player, Jack. And it's just like, that's the one insult he can say because he really can't, you know, just make up a dumb insult. Like, no, he's good at his job too. And so uh, this does kind of get back to, um, you know, that was a Rob Reiner film, but this does kind of get back to um, this sort of uh, study of people just working hard and being good at their jobs. The thing that I love so much about uh, a few, or, all the president's men is the fact that the Mark Felt character, Hal Holbrook, looks so much like Mark Felt. And they even like, <laughs> they were reporters and they were starting out and, you know, but they they called him my friend uh, when they were like mm-hmm. in their documents, I'm going to meet, which are the initials of Mark Felt. And I guess Carl Bernstein mm-hmm. was dating, you know, Nora Ephron at the time. And so Nora Ephron for years would tell anybody who would listen that it was Mark Felt. And people did talk about Mark <laughs> Felt, but they didn't necessarily believe Nora Ephron's version of the events. But, you know, the, the dialogue <laughs> of this movie is great. You have follow the money, stuff that wasn't in the book. They stopped it before, um, you know, the end of the book. It kind of, you know, the story keeps going. So it's a different thing. But there's just so much to love about this movie. And uh, it's one of those films, like Steven Soderbergh has said, it's one of his like three favorite films. And you can tell like people like Fincher who just saw this thing and, uh, you know, loved it and did their own thing with it. You brought up the fly on the wall style Parallax View is probably his most experimental. Like he even talked about it. I mean, that movie has like a film within a film sequence that Fincher mm-hmm. wound up mm-hmm. using for the game, essentially, like the same mm-hmm. approach and uh, kind of this parallax view thing. But this sort of takes him to what we were seeing include this observational getting into um, what is going on and these people just typing away. Yeah. I think also you need that sort of observational style. Yeah. For the, I think as a writer, the bigger the story, the mm-hmm. more distance the narrator needs, in mm-hmm. my opinion. And so, you know, like for instance, I'll use Few Good Men again. That's a very small story. Don't get me wrong. It's it's a tragedy. You know, there's a murder, yeah. um, or unintentional, but still murder. Um, but it's really the story of these couple of Marines who are on trial. This guy, Tom Cruise, uh, you know, uh, uh, Kathy, who's a really good lawyer, but doesn't really believe in himself. And, you know, Jack Nicholson's character, who is this 
you know, this great, powerful, impressive villain. You have this sort of intimacy that exists in that. The camera, a lot of times, is right on Jessup's face. It's right on Cruz's face. It's right on Demi Moore's face. With all the, all the president's men, because it's such a massive story and has such, you know, important ramifications for not just the, not just the, the, the nation, but society in general. I mean, this was a film when it came out, you know, there were people who were still fans of Nixon who didn't like it. There were people who felt like this film was divisive, you know, mm-hmm. you know, Gerald Ford is pardoning. Why are you guys talking about this? And so this sort of distance that Bakula gives it sort of, to me, makes you realize, oh, this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let the facts speak for themselves. I don't yep. need to add any extra flourishes or any extra camera tricks or anything. Also, I think the relationship between Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford is so good because it's not instant buddy cop drama. They are both journalists, but they're also a little bit competitors. But oh, they yeah. realize at some yeah, they realize at some point it's us against this the against the president. You know, mm-hmm. and so I think Pakula's distance, his sort of eye in the sky sort of style really works well for that. Also, you can see his intelligence. What I said earlier about him, his intellectual curiosity is that he because he's an actor's uh, director, he mm-hmm. lets the story go where it needs to go. Of course, we know the story. We know the book. We know what happened to historical events. Yeah. But there's little flourishes, there's little things that Hoffman and, and Jason Robards and and uh, uh, Robert Redford and the the, the the actor playing Deep Throat do that you could see Bakula sitting in his chair saying, okay, yeah, let's try that. Let's go that way. Let's, you know, he's not this iron hand that's literally forcing the story into a certain direction. And I think, I think that's an underrated skill as mm-hmm. a director. I'm not a director, but as a film fan, you can, you know, like you hear the horror story of Stanley Kubrick doing, you know, thousands of takes you know, essentially driving Shelley Duvall insane. And when I was younger, when I was a younger man, and I had a different point of view about art and creativity, I was really impressed with that. I'm like, mm-hmm. yes, that's what you do to get your vision. That's how you get it. God damn it. And now as an older gentleman, I just think that's sort of sad. You know, I think if you get to a certain level and you're really good at what you're doing, it shouldn't take 1,400 takes, you know? It, it shouldn't take <laughs> 70 drafts, you know? You should be able to get it, get what you want to say and articulate it in a way that is comfortable and a way that's challenging, but also a way that is professional. Um, I just love All the Presence, man. I think it's the great real-life conspiracy movie of our times, uh, um, you know? And it's funny because he made that and The Parallax View, which is sort of similar stories, although I think The Parallax View has a lot of uh, inspiration from a face... Uh, from uh, Andy Griffiths, A Face in the Crowd, um, and sort of that sort of, you know, uh, behind the scenes, horrible people doing things that, you know, they're basically conning the rest of the country. But with all the president's men, he took this sort of historical event and he made it dramatic and he made it suspenseful. Again, it's a story you know the end of, but you're still on the edge of your seat throughout the film. I think that is a perfect segue, actually, because that was uh, a worry 
for our next film, um, Scott Turow's book, uh, Presumed Innocent, was such a massive hit when it came out around 87, I believe, that, um, you know, people developing it were like, well, why are we making it into a movie? Because everybody knows the end of this, the big twist ending, um, you know, and it's a legal thriller. It is... Pakula kind of working in the same vein of sort of uh, the film that would come later that we were just talking about of A Few Good Men um, and before Pakula made like uh, Pelican Brief. But here we have uh, Harrison Ford, as you've never seen him before. He loved the idea of playing something uh, very different. He is a lawyer who is, you're not really sure for a bulk of the film, is he guilty or innocent of a crime of the murder and rape of his ex-lover, his mistress, uh, played by Greta Skaki. You also have Bonnie Bedelia, who is a fabulous actress, somebody who I think doesn't get enough credit for just how good she is um, and what a difficult role she had in this film. I like this movie. I respect the film. I don't necessarily love it as much as some of those other legal thrillers of the time period. Um, and I don't know if it's because it doesn't really let you into the emotional world quite as much. And I think maybe part of that is because he was trying to stay so true to the book um, from the behind the scenes, reading the way things went down. He sometimes would argue with the screenwriter who at one point wanted his name off the picture and uh, wanted then Pakula's name to be shared with him because, you know, we, we agreed to take out a scene and put it back in and stuff. But it what for what it is, it works extremely well. The actors are all extraordinary, which is another Pakula thing. He can find that sort of um, thing inside you, inside Harrison Ford, who uh, famously said the first time they met when he walked in his office, he thought he wandered into a shrink's office uh, instead of <laughs> film directors because he's like, I've never been uh, asked that many questions or talked to uh to such an extent or psychoanalyzed actually bob woodward said that too when he was asking him question after question in the development of all the president's men bob woodward was like i was telling him stuff about my childhood like i don't talk about <laughs> and he was drawing these conclusions to well that's what led you to become a reporter and that's what and he realized oh my god you're right like he went to therapy but in a conversation with alan pakula and so I think Bakula is great for this. It was going to be a Sydney Pollock joint, should we say? And so it's Sydney Pollock producing uh, Pakula in this case because he was busy with something else. I think it's a very good film. It's above average. It's really well done. It isn't my favorite, but man, the acting is great in it. And uh, that ending, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, so I first watched this. I read the book when it came out in 87. The movie came out in 90. And I knew going in the twist, is, you know, and I think that's the fear with a mystery novel. And I've written both mystery, like true mysteries, and I've written yeah. both, like, just crime novels. And, you know, crime novels, usually they're journeys, you know. There's people who want something and what they do to get it and then what happens once they get it. And mystery. And I was obviously is you trying to solve a mystery, trying to ask ask a question, and you're trying to answer it before the end of the book. But for me, the thing that I loved about this book was, I mean, this movie, even though it was it was made and released in 1990, 
it looks like it's made in the seventies. There's something with the cinematography That's where everything point. has this sort of almost is dewy, almost uh, I don't want to say wet, but everything has this sort of gossamer look. But this gossamer look as if it's filtered through you know this smoky lens, and it's just this really interesting look to the film. Like Gordon I said, the acting is incredible. Paul Winfield, yeah. I mean, it's just incredible. Paul Winfield, Raul Julia. You said you mentioned Bonnie Bedelia. Uh, all these great actors and character actors that are in the film as well. You know, and so it's like it's just an amazing. Uh, Brian Dennehy is great. Oh, so it's good, fantastic in this. Yes. Film. Yeah, and so just these incredible actors and actresses that are doing this incredible work. I think something you said earlier really is uh is is a uh, contextually important to this film clute is it's it presumed innocent is sort of a spiritual sequel to clute in so much as uh rusty the main character in and presumed innocent played by harrison ford who's a da who has a wonderful wife played by bonnie Bedelia, who finds himself drawn in by this beautiful alluring woman greta skaki and her character carolyn Palmas. And it's not that Carolyn is, you know, I, I'm using words here just to get a point across. It's not that she's a slut. It's not that no. she's, you know, morally bankrupt. She's just a young woman who knows what she wants. And she's ambitious. And that ambition arouses something in Rusty. It draws him into her. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, it's to the tango, you know. Um, yeah, that's Rusty the point of the movie. Yeah. Just decision. Yeah, to be with her. He makes the conscious decision. He's not the, uh, I'm not going to give anything away. Even though the movie's old, I'm going to respect the spoiler. But he's not the destroyer. He, she's, you know, he's the destroyer of his marriage, mm-hmm. not Greta Skaki's character. And so I think it's fascinating that Pakula sort of uses Raul Julia, again, as an avatar for the audience. He's Rusty's defense attorney, but he's also speaking for us at times. He's, at certain points, he's like, what were you thinking? Yeah. Why did you do this? And Harrison Ford has no answer. He has no great answer for him. And mm-hmm. I think one thing that I like about this film is as the movie goes on, you realize <laughs> all the men in this town where it takes place are so backwards and so uh, repressed. Mm-hmm. And all it took to upset their little apple cart was a woman who was confident in herself. They didn't mm-hmm. know how to deal with her. You know, they wanted her, they hated her, you know, they loved her, they despised her, all because they're repressed, all because none of them had the courage to move out of their town, to go on in their, with their lives, or to seek things out in their lives that excited them. Rusty falls in this affair with Carolyn because he's afraid that he has missed something, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting that Pakula, Pakula was able to sort of focus on that because as a man, I think there are moments in our lives, especially before you settle down, where you think, am I making the right decision? You know, am I going to miss something? Is there something more out there that I haven't taken the chance to, to experience? And what you learn, hopefully, if you're uh, someone who is self-analytical, is that there are always going to be things that you miss. But there are things that you miss are not always things that you should have. And I think that's something that Pakula was able to really zero in on with Rusty, with Paul Winfield's character, with Brian Dennehy's character. You know, I think some people come away from this movie and they think, oh, well, Greta Scott is just playing, you know, she's the cold-hearted platinum mm-hmm. blonde bitch. bitch. And I, yeah. I, I don't mean that derisively. 
Yeah, no, but not. like the ball you know? breaker or that kind of thing. Like she isn't, uh, the, you know, to use the movie that came out around this time, it isn't like the Glenn Co- Close character in Fatal Attraction, which also depresses me, but for different reasons. But um, in this case, you have a woman who's super ambitious and uh, it is that old thing. And she's also very sexually aggressive and she knows what she wants. And, you know, there is a little bit of, um, you know, compulsion in her own sexuality. And you kind of wonder about her own background, just like you wondered about Breeze a little bit in Clute. But here you have uh, these men and you kind of can see... Sometimes, you know, when you fall in love with someone at the beginning of a relationship, you're sort of seeing yourself sort of mirrored back at you and you sort of have that um, narcissist and echo thing where you you sort of fall in love with yourself or the version of you through their eyes. And you can kind of see the two characters, Harrison Ford and the Skaki character working together and they have this exciting breakthrough. He was a little jaded and didn't think this case they take on could be won and he managed to do it. And I think it opens up this idea of, wait, sometimes the truth can work. And sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. we can help the little guy and take maybe we should take on cases that might be risky and take mm-hmm. risks. And then, of course, that dovetails into a passionate, um, you know, encounter with both of them. But yeah, I think uh, I love what you were saying too about the character actors in this. Raul Julia, I think, is one of our uh, greats. So it was really cool to see him. Brian Dennehy, of course. And I think it was just really daring of Harrison Ford to take this on. This was a couple years after he did like Frantic, which is another role of his Mm -hmm. that I love that not enough people have seen, not enough people talk about like Mosquito Coast. And I think in these movies where we actually Mm -hmm. asked him to do things um, and to play against uh, his heroic or his, you know, sort of fairy tale um background with children we saw a, a vulnerable man which is great i wanted to, to say something what you said i thought it was interesting that greta Skaki's character is sexually both aggressive but also sexually aware that yeah. she knows what she wants and mm-hmm. that she doesn't have this sort of puritanical viewpoint on sex for her sex with her superior it's a part of the matter, of course. Now, again, we don't know her background. She's not yeah. given. We only see her in flashbacks. Yeah. We never see her in in, in actual the narrative time. Mm-hmm. So everything we know about her is through the eyes of the men that desired her. And mm-hmm. so, again, I wonder how much of that is a skewered uh, point of view. Um, you know, uh, I, I'd be fascinated to see, or, like, I know from reading the book that there are other details to her background, but... I think, you know, of course, Pakula, he made a decision to sort of uh, skirt around that because, unfortunately, sadly, the story isn't about her, even though she's no. a murder victim. It's mm-hmm. about Rusty. It's about this man who made gives into not just temptation, but I say, I think, gives into this. Yeah, he makes bad choices and he has to pay the consequences. You know, it's funny. Uh, there's a movie years ago that I think is very underrated and it's not at all similar to this, except in the fact that there's a very self actualized woman female performance that is very sexual but in a sexual way that she owns it is in the cut jane oh uh, yeah i think it's jane campion i may yep. be wrong great yeah. film uh, mm-hmm. and meg ryan who yeah who was playing against type really is sort of that same thing she's a woman i think in the real world 
and also in fictional world, a lot of times men don't know what to do with a woman who doesn't adhere to these preconceived notions of femininity. You know, mm-hmm. Greta Skaggy's character is like, no, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I'm your equal. I'll have sex with you when I feel like it. And then you can go back to your wife. I don't have the same morals as you do. That doesn't make me wrong or right. In the cut, the same thing is a woman who is exploring her sexuality in a way that men can't control, you know? And so I, I just thought that was interesting in comparison to Presumed Innocent. Also, Presumed Innocent works as just a really good legal drama. I think it works as a really good sort of mystery. I will say this. The only thing that I think... My personal problem with it is, is at some point, the level of shenanigans, sexual and otherwise, sort of, he almost loses it because it's like, I'm from a small town and I understand. It gets a little ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, because I understand sort of the the minutiae of the small town and the interweaving of the tapestry. Everybody knows everybody, Mm -hmm. but come on. It's like, (laughs) how many people, when did this woman have time to sleep? If she's, you know, she's sleeping so, with everyone. That's a yeah. little bit. It, yeah, she she ain't sleeping. She's like, no, she's not getting a nap. But um, <laughs> but I think at the end of the day, I like the film because of Harrison Ford's performance, Bonnie Bedelia's performance, all the great character actors. Again, Raul Julia again is the avatar for the audience. But again, I think it goes back to what we said about all the persons men and um, Clute and also other films by Bakula is this sort of very clinical, sort of mm-hmm. really interesting intellectual curiosity. And I thought it was interesting you said about him asking so many questions of the actors and the, the, the people who inspired the characters in his book, because he really, more than most directors, really seemed to really want to know not just the characters' motivations, but the actors' motivations, what made the story tick. He really, to me, he's sort of that the 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 precise watch style director where he breaks it all apart and wants mm-hmm. to see each individual gear and then he puts it all back together in a way again I said again that can be sort of cold but also to me it's fascinating and I love that style and like I said I love the fact that he was really curious about what made these people and these actors tick and I don't know if there are directors Today, with that level of, you know, there's some that are close. I think Scorsese has a little bit of that. Um, I think Francois Coppola had it for a long time. Uh, you know, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think like Tarantino has it because he has a very singular vision of what he's trying to bring to the screen. Or someone like, uh, you know, I think Manigault, James Manigault, um, you know, is someone who has that same sort of intellectual curiosity. I'm one of the people I love. Ford versus Ferrari. Again, that sort of procedural porn where it's just people who are really good at their jobs doing it really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think Manigold sort of is not the heir apparent to Bakula. I don't want to saddle him with that. But I think he's one of those directors who has that same sort of inquisitiveness. That's a really good way of saying it. And an intellectual inquisitiveness that comes from a deep well of knowledge and and insight. Um, And for me, as a filmmaker and as a writer, more so as a writer almost, I'm fascinated with his body of work because, again, I love that sort of switch-swatch timepiece sort of way of directing. We're going to break everything apart and pull it back together and put it together piece by piece. And you're going to see me putting it together. And then the end end result, you're going to be really moved with what we come up with. And like I said, again, as a writer, I am striving to do that with my work. I want 
to really delve deep into the psychology of my characters and what drives them and what they're afraid of and what they like and what are their, you know, lack for lack of better word, what are their kinks? What are their fears? All of that. I think that makes such a more well-rounded story, both in film and in novels. So uh, I just love his stuff. I, I could, like I said, I could watch his stuff over and over again. Anytime it comes on uh, on uh, TCM, and on a, I'll plop down and, and kick back. And it doesn't matter where I'm watching it, in the middle, the beginning, or the end. Uh, his films just have such a sort of, like I said, sort of precision to them that I really like. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought up James Mangold because uh, Ford versus Ferrari kind of reminds me of Philip Kaufman's The Right Stuff. They're both kind of Westerns. They both do things uh, with hats. There, There's some interesting um, editing little tricks. But when you look at Mangold's like beginning of his career and writing a movie like Heavy or Copland, um, sort of these character-driven mm-hmm. uh, pieces and in Copland, especially getting to the bottom of a conspiracy, you can kind of see a little bit of Pakula or somebody that inspired him. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's good. You were pointing out that uh, Presumed Innocent gets a little bit crazy. And when I was watching uh, the film, the line from Jason Robards, my favorite line from all the president's men kept coming back, which is, you know, when they're talking about uh, the deep throat and his uh, Woodward's garage freak. And then Robard says something like garage freak. What kind of a crazy fucking story is this? And uh, so when you watch (laughs) presumed innocent, you're like, my God, what kind of a crazy fucking story is this? But you know, you're willing to overlook it because of uh, his precision and the way he's presenting things sort of matter of factly and letting you get to know the people behind them. So I was really glad to look into Pakula's body of work. I also really love um, Pelican Brief and some other films he made. Comes a Horseman is a film, I think, that Blake and I are like the two people in the world that love it, James Caan <laughs> and Jane Fonda. Um, though I even, you know, I can even apologize for like um, Rollover with Jane Fonda, which is crazy. But it's uh, another sort of conspiratorial uh, thing involving the stock market and foreign countries. And, you know, don't think about it too much because it it takes that sort of parallax view kind of thing. But, um, yeah, it's a great I have career. a good friend. Uh, I have a good friend who told me she loves Sophie's Choice. And she said he didn't direct anything else. I would still think he's one of our greatest directors for Sophie's Choice. That was the first one I ever saw. I'm so glad you brought up Sophie's Choice because I can't believe I blanked on that. That was the first Bakula film I ever saw. And that's the one. And he's also. Oh, I'll just say real quick. I'm so sorry. I just want to say that's also his clinical style, but it's Mm -hmm. buffeted against this intense, incredibly existential, deep, well story that i think it's just again in somebody else's hands it could have veered into maudlinism in being maudlin or it could have it could have veered into you know uh uh you know emotional torture torture porn and it doesn't his steady hand Mm -mm. he's right down the center and i i I love that movie so you like you said he has an incredible body work he's a a character i mean actor i'm gonna ask you a director that i think you know, unfortunately, it left us way too soon. I'd love to see 
you know, what he would have done later on uh, again with some of the new techniques and, and filmmaking and, and just, you know, I would love to see his take on our current sociological political climate. It would have been interesting. Oh yes. Yeah. Everyone in this documentary that I watched Alan J. Pakula going for the truth was asked that and they're like, he would absolutely be making movies right now about the administration and everything that we've seen and experienced 100%. But as far as Sophie's Choice goes, it does sort of trace his uh, background being interested in characters first. Jane Fonda, who is uh, still very good friends with uh, Pakula's widow, talked about that was the one time. uh, She said that we don't talk, actors don't really talk about their favorite directors or we kind of keep that to ourselves or the the ones we really love we don't really trade secrets but we never (laughs) shut up about the directors we hate and uh she said you know everybody seemed to love Pakula, but she said that uh sophie's choice was the movie that his widow said um one day he came home from set and he said i am working with a genius and of course that was meryl streep yeah meryl streep yeah yeah amazing it's amazing Mm -hmm. he's had amazing career and like i said just you know again i if nothing else comes from this podcast i hope people will go back and and revisit his catalog he really deserves to be in that sort of 70s upper Mm -hmm. echelon cinema verte auteurs with coppola and and scorsese and pollock and lumet um you know he really deserves to be on that mount rushmore he's an uncommon uh filmmaker with an incredible incredible style so Yes. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. You're going to have to come up with another topic. It's always such a joy, Sean. (laughs) I will try. I I got a bunch. I don't like to bother you. So I, I give everybody else a turn. But I love, love, love getting a chance to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.